My name is Ginny. I'm one of the pastors here at Emmanuel. Good morning. It is so good to be with you in this room this morning, to be in worship with you. I've been uh, racing back and forth between, y'all know where Bethlehem, Georgia is? Anybody ever? Okay. I've been, um, they're like, yeah, I know. Um, I was, uh, my brother-in-law got married this weekend there, and I was able to officiate, which was really lovely, but I'm, I'm always very happy to be home after a weekend like that, so it's really good to be with you all. I wanted to give you a quick update on Matthew, our lead pastor, who has been on leave the last several weeks. Uh, as most of you know, he had an emergency within his family, and of all of us, as all of us would hope for for ourselves and for anyone that we love, we sent him home to be with his family, um, to move through that season together, and um, didn't really put a timeline on that for him. Because what that does for us when we give um, people space in a season like that is it kind of releases the pressure, you know, of an end date. If you've ever been on something like maternity leave and, you know, you go through this big life moment and then uh, you have a, a, a clock in front of you, you know, it's like you better be done by 10 weeks. You better be healed. That baby better be sleeping. You know, there's like pressure all of a sudden on that timeline. And so what we wanted to do in this season for him is to say, just go be, um, heal together, you know? Uh, so we've been able to do that and we just are, are so grateful for the space and wanted you all to know that he was back with us this week internally. He was at our staff meeting and we had a really wonderful time this week and he'll be back with us again next week. So I'm sure specifics would be helpful to you. Uh, I don't have them this, this week as far as like what it'll look like for him to come back on Sunday mornings and um, be in the pulpit and be more present with everyone because of that reason that we're just giving space and just letting him um, kind of come back uh, at a leisurely pace into life together with us. So hopefully next week I'll have some more details for you as we meet together more this week. But just wanted to let you know that we had a wonderful time together this week. This season of Leave for Matthew was not just a staff decision alone, not at all. It was, it was a decision by our vestry, our governing body. Uh, we wanted as a staff to be able to be generous during this season, and our vestry sort of one-upped our generosity, which vestry should do. You know, Governing church bodies should be incredibly generous, and ours is, and it's just so wonderful. So we're just very grateful for them and their leadership during this season. Uh, I think it's also helpful in seasons like this as a church to come around, uh, to take like a, a teaching moment for us together as people who belong to one another at this church, just to say that um, we want to be this kind of church that's generous with our staff and with our, um, our leave, with the space that we need to take sometimes in our lives. And the reason we want to be that way, the reason that that is one of our values is because this church is most certainly about one person. And that person is not on our staff, not paid by this church. Uh, that person is Jesus. And so what we say when we give people time away is what we want to say to our staff is like, we love you, you matter, um, but this thing doesn't revolve around you, you know? This thing is so much bigger than any one of us on staff. And really good leave, sabbaticals, things like that are a way for us as a church to say, like, God is here. God is working. We're centered around the person of Jesus here at this church, not any one staff member. So it is a value for us to be able to live into this season. And you, as people who go to our church and are sitting in these seats and are saying yes and amen to all of these things, are a part of this with us, a part of this value, a reason we can make this a reality for us. And so I just want to say thank you. Um, I know that for some of us, we have 
lots of history in the church that can be can feel really troubling. So if this season without um, the lead, our lead pastor here with us every week has been troubling to you or has created anxiety in you, please set up a meeting with me or with Beth or with Micah so that we can uh, bring those things into the light as they ought to be and speak uh, some peace to you so that we can say, um, you know, we're in this together and we want to be able to say what's true to you and not just from, you know, separate feet, many feet away from the pulpit. You know what I mean? Like can look into your eyes and be like, we're, we're okay. Um, so that's all. Thank you for bearing with me through that and for being with us in this season. Let's read the Bible together. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9 this morning. It's funny, as we move uh, along in years, I less and less hear the Bibles rustling in the audience, you know? We all have our phones or our screens. All right, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Jesus and his disciples are walking through Gentile territory together on a journey. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask him. When they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you all arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus now, this is the second time he has predicted his death and resurrection to the disciples. So I think it's helpful to put ourselves in their shoes before we kind of really launch into this moment in the text. So these disciples have been following their rabbi Jesus, this leader that they have found kind of their life call in this, this man and what he is teaching and preaching. And they've been following him around as good um, disciples do, as, uh, as followers of a rabbi do. They've been following him around all around the ancient Near East and um, listening to his words and, and uh, learning his teaching and sitting with him and eating with him. And then all of a sudden one day something happens he tells them a really scary thing. He tells them, just so that you know, um, I'm going to die. I'm, very soon I'm going to be handed over um, to people, and they are going to um, make me suffer, and then I'm going to die, and then I will be resurrected. As, an, as you can imagine, this was startling news to his disciples, and as we see here, um, was not something that they could understand even. So when Mark tells us that this moment happens three different times um, in the text, what he's trying to tell us is this, that this was something that the disciples could not understand, and that Jesus had to address it three times before he even went to the cross to ultimately show them what it is that he was talking about. The first time that this happens is the chapter right before this in chapter 8. And what happens right before he decides to tell his disciples what's going to happen to him is he asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say a few different um, things. They say, some people say that you're actually John the Baptist. 
Some people say that you are like some sort of reincarnation of Elijah. And other people say you're one of the prophets and they're so excited that you're here and doing what you're doing. And he looks at them and he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, who's like the chief disciple, kind of pipes up among them and says, you're the Messiah. And it's something about this declaration that Peter says in this moment that makes Jesus kind of move into this next phase of teaching with his disciples. And he says, you're right, I am the Messiah, and here's what I have come here to do. Here's what's um, in, in the next phase of my life for me, suffering, death, and resurrection. And if you have ever read any sort of Mark commentaries or anything like that, you know that this is the moment in Mark when everything shifts. There's like two sections to Mark. There's the section before this moment where Jesus starts to talk about his death and his resurrection. And there is the section here and the section after um, where Jesus, everything turns towards the cross. Everything starts pointing to the end of Jesus's life for him. His teaching changes. The way he walks with his disciples gets a little bit more urgent. Uh, You can just kind of like feel the shift in him after this moment. Um, So we're with Jesus today in the second time that he predicts his, his death. When um, Peter says, when Jesus finally says, yes, I am, I'm going to the cross, this is going to be the ultimate reality for me, um, Peter rebukes him, and he says, no, <laughs> we're doing fine here, everything's going really well, like, why would you have to say something like that to us, you know? And Jesus looks at him and, and then rebukes him back, kind of, and says, you're not setting your, thing, your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man, on human things. And what we're seeing in this text with ours of the second time that Jesus does this is this exact same thing. The disciples are again setting their minds on human things and not on things of God. So what we are seeing this morning in this text is we're seeing Jesus inviting us with the disciples to consider the cross. To consider what it looks like. To hear Jesus say these things over and over again and to still choose to follow him, to still walk alongside him. And what we see is that we tend to resist this thing that Jesus is inviting us into, as the disciples do. So what I want us to do this morning is to kind of sit with that resistance to the cross, the thing that Jesus is continually putting before us and saying, this is what it looks like to follow me. This is what it looks like to be even, to be Jesus, to live the life that Jesus lived. This is what it looks like to follow me. And then to watch the disciples over and over again kind of like put distance between themselves and that reality. We need to sit with that. And then what we can do is once we've sat with that, we can then sit with the disciples when Jesus says, okay, I see that this is hard for you. Let me give it to you another way. And that's what we see this morning. So that's what we're going to do in this text. One of the things I love about Mark's gospel is that it doesn't shy away from the fact that the message of the cross and the resurrection made Jesus' followers feel really afraid and confused. This is the one gospel that ends with people um, running away from the tomb scared, and they did not tell anyone what happened. And you're like, well, that's not true. We wouldn't all be sitting here if that was the case. And yet that's how Mark decides to end his gospel. Um, So it tells us... um, I think a really important thing, it it explains an important concept, that the cross is something that we're resistant to and that we're afraid of and that causes a lot of confusion for us. And that's okay. That's normal. Even Jesus' own disciples felt that way. The other Gospels do a really great job of, of showing the joy 
of the cross and the resurrection and the ultimate hope that it brings us. And yet there's something a little dark and twisty about Mark that I just love and I think is so helpful for us, especially if you're in a place of um, feeling that own resistance in your own life. Mark is here to say that, that that's normal. Mark is radically authentic and honest about how the cross made Jesus' disciples feel. The cross ought to trouble us, not because of the nature of the cross, but of, because of the nature of who we are. I don't think that this moment where Jesus' disciples are arguing about greatness is just an example of what distracts us from the message of the cross. This isn't just a, a parable moment of silly disciples doing things wrong again. I think Mark is telling us here that this is the exact thing that distracts human beings, generation after generation, from the message and the way of the cross. Our own greatness, ourselves, our success, our self-absorption. Jesus is telling us in this moment where our salvation lies, and we in turn run from that instinctually and turn to one another and say, I'm greater. That's our just natural response as human beings ourselves and our upward mobility. When we resist the cross, that's the place that we go for our salvation. Self-promotion, however, and self-preservation are innate, but are antithetical to the cross. So Jesus has a lot to say about that. Ronald Rollheiser, who's a monk and a scholar, two of the greatest occupations, I think, to go together. Uh, You've probably heard me quote him a lot if you've been around here for a while. I'm kind of obsessed. I think he's great. Pick up any one of his books and you'll be uh, the better for it. He did his doctoral research on why in the last couple hundred years we have sort of lost as a culture our innate felt presence, our innate sense of who God is. That throughout history, we see in human cultures and art and things like that, we have seen over and over that people kind of wake up in the morning and look around and have said, there's so much meaning in this world, there has to be someone to mean it. That's how we've lived for, for most of our human existence. And yet more recently in the last couple hundred years, uh, we've lost whatever that is, that innate sense that there is someone to mean all the meaning in the world or that there's any meaning in the world at all. So his research is around why, why we've lost that sense. And he gives three reasons why, and one of them today, in particular, I think is, um, we're, is being revealed in this text, affirmed in this text. One of the reasons that we can no longer sense God's presence or understand God's ways, he argues, is narcissism, an obsession with ourselves and with our greatness. Our obsessive reality sort of absorbs our awareness of God and makes what little we do see distorted and shaped by self-interest rather than God interest or other interest. Rollheiser says, it's not surprising that we have trouble believing in the reality of God when we have trouble perceiving any reality at all beyond ourselves. So all that is true, I think. I also think there are some of us, some of whom I know in this very room, who are really not self-obsessed. You're pretty self-giving, actually, Never would be caught dead arguing about how great you are on, on, you know, on a walk with someone. That's probably not me. Um, but I know there are some of you who are here, and I, I just want to say, like, thank God for you. Thank God that 
Uh, God made you the way that you are. We need you desperately in the world. We need your humility, you know. And yet, I still think that, that there is a message for, for you as well, even if you would not be arguing about how great you are. Because what we see that's happening in the disciple, disciples is not just this, like, I am great self, self-obsession, I believe. Because what they're ultimately doing in resisting the message of the cross is they are protecting themselves from pain, which is something that we all do. The thing we need to be confronted with is that many of us Christians want and need the cross for our salvation, but we do not want the cross for ourselves. We do not want to go the way of the cross. We do not want to suffer with Jesus, but we're perfectly happy with him suffering on our behalf. This has been true of Christians throughout history, and we know it's true of us, and we see that it's true here in the disciples. It's kind of the innate way of being human, and yet Christ continues to beckon us to his cross with him. There will always be a tendency in us, I believe, to refuse the way of suffering and avoid the way of the cross. This is not a message of shame to you or me. Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane tried to pass the cup Say, Lord, if this is not your will, like, please take this suffering away from me. And God, uh, God did not. And so Jesus continued on. So even if Jesus asked for the suffering to be taken away from him, this is then not a message of shame to say, like, I can't believe you'd want to live a life pain-free, you know. But rather to say, how do we follow Jesus there? How do we do what Jesus did and make the decision to continue on towards the cross when everything in us is resistant to it? What does it mean for Jesus to invite us into the way of the cross? What does it look like? What's he inviting his disciples into in this moment? I think what happens here with Jesus is truly remarkable. Um, Because what he does in this moment is, for me, if I was him, if I was, you know, leading these disciples throughout the land, and if I was heading towards my own death, and I finally let my closest friends in on that secret... And then they turned to one another and started talking about how great they were. I would be 10 out of 10 angry, you know? I'd be like, did you not hear anything I just said? Even as my friends, can you not, like, get on board with what I'm saying and ask me a few questions and maybe grieve with me, you know? I would just be so furious. And yet Jesus, what he does is he turns this into a teaching moment. If you are a parent or in leadership or anything like that in your life, this is just a good extra lesson for all of us to say, when you are in that place where you're so angry that the people who are supposed to be with you are not with you in the ways that you want, rather than letting that lead you to anger, say, this is a time to teach you a really good lesson. Will you come and learn from me? You know. So that's what's happening here. They go to this home. They kind of walk all day long, and then they enter this person's house. People in the ancient Near East used to live in homes where there were, it was intergenerational, but there were also likely multiple families with, living within these homes. If you imagine it's Jesus, his disciples, and then maybe multiple families. So this was not uh, a quiet place that they were staying for the evening or for a few days. This was probably a, a bustling place. Um, so what Jesus does is he says, I want you to come here and sit with me, which in ancient language is a way of saying that a really important teaching moment is about to happen. So they all come sit with him, and and Jesus says, all right, so you can't hear about the cross right now. That's okay. Let me put it to you in a different way. Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. And then he gives them an illustration of what this looks like. He doesn't sit and give his very best sermon on what the cross looks like in your life and in my life and life of the disciples. He locates 
a small person, a child, brings them into the middle of what's going on with them in this teaching moment, then even embraces this child, the text says, like begins to hold this child. And then Jesus turns to his disciples, shows them this wonderful image and turns to them and says, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And that word welcome, I think, is lost on us because we have this picture of like just being nice. Whoever's just nice to one such person is nice to Jesus. Or whoever says hello (laughs) um, to this person says hello to Jesus. Rather, what he's saying is he's showing what it's supposed to look like. Whoever embraces one such child embraces Jesus. Embrace, receive, even adopt is a better word really than, than welcome. So you can imagine what he's saying here. Whoever adopts one such child in my name adopts me, adopts my way of life, adopts the way of the cross even. So how do we begin to understand the message of the cross in this text? I think what Jesus is telling us is that we have to turn away from our own greatness, our own self-absorption by taking in those whom by the world's standards don't add to our upward mobility. Turn towards the vulnerable, extend hospitality and care to others. Jesus knows that our tendency is to bring in people around us who add to our greatness, to our self-development. We want to bring in people around who bolster our greatness, right? It's really easy even to celebrate the greatness of others when we know their proximity to us adds to our greatness. We love to like celebrate people around us on our staff, even like everyone's greatness. And then eventually we have to ask like, who are we bringing into this thing that needs us? You know, we all just continue to add to each other's greatness and aren't actually seeking out the vulnerable. Then what are we doing as a church? So you may be asking, Jenny, are you telling me I have to move to Calcutta? Maybe, maybe I am telling you that. Um, But I also think that it's really interesting in this moment in the text. Jesus does not, as he does in other places in the Bible, I believe, take his disciples into like the slums of Capernaum and say, like, you have to receive these people in order to receive me. And that's not saying that that's not true. It absolutely is. But I think Jesus is saying something specific about who he takes in this moment. Jesus looked around who was in proximity to him that was in the most need, that had the most need around him this child. He didn't go anywhere. He just looked right around where he was in his own life. And the other interesting thing is, is like, I don't think this was like an abandoned child or a child who is in danger uh, or a child who is especially vulnerable. This kid belonged to someone. He was in his own or she was in their own home. So there was nothing particularly vulnerable likely about this child. Um, There's just something vulnerable about being a child in the midst of a bunch of grown-ups. You know what I mean? I think Jesus just wants us to be open to the needs of the people around us. God loves to put us actually in proximity to those whom we ought to give ourselves to. Jesus is telling us, if you want to know me, if you want to follow me, if you want to be like me, if you want to understand me, if you want to more deeply understand and go the way of the cross then receive those around you. Receive others for their sake, not for your own. This is a call to some of us this morning in this room to prayerfully consider adoption and foster care. 
What would it look like for you to open yourself up in that way, to create space in your own life for that? This is a call for some of us to add chairs to our dinner tables and to ask around our proximity, either at church or wherever it is, do you want to come fill this chair with me? Do you want to come sit at my dinner table? Do you want to join my family for this thing? This is a call for some of us to get to know our neighbors better, those who are in the most proximity to you for the most hours of the day, whether that be your neighbors at work or at home, wherever that may be. This is not an exhaustive text on what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus, but it is an invitation to every single one of us in this room. I think many of us sort of wait around our whole life for the great act of discipleship we'll finally do, you know? That one great day where you finally sell all your possessions and you go wherever it is. Or when you finally quit your job and you go to seminary and you're about to go into full-time ministry, you know? Whatever your great act of discipleship will be one day in your life, we kind of wait for that day. And yet we never fill the chairs around our dining room tables. We never do anything with those spare rooms in our homes. And what Jesus is saying to us here is that is a great act of discipleship. That is the way of the cross, is to look around you and receive people for their sake and not for your own. That's what it looks like to walk to the cross with Jesus. Taking on someone else for their sake, that's the way of the cross. I think the the beautiful thing about this invitation from Jesus is that if we do things like this in our life, if we take in those around us, those will add up to a life, a great, deep life of discipleship, of following Jesus to the cross. These small acts are exactly what it looks like to follow Jesus, to have a cross-shaped life, to continue to give yourself for the sake of another. That is the way of discipleship, the way of Jesus, the thing that he's inviting us into at all times. So would you look into your life and ask where you can give? Where's the space in your life? And then look, who is around you? Who might God be asking you to bring into your space for their sake, to love them? Amen. Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.